Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, join Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, for a discussion with Pablo Delano, visual artist and photographer and professor of fine arts at Trinity College and the artist behind the new book Hartford Scene, published in 2020 by Wesleyan University Press. His work is featured in the photo essay, Visually Breathtaking Hartford Explored, in the summer 2021 issue of Connecticut Explored magazine. Professor Delano's father, Jack Delano, was a renowned American New Deal photographer for the Farm Security Administration, who photographed Connecticut in 1940. This is Mary Donahue. It's unusual to have two generations of artists in the same family, each create an archive of photographs documenting the culture and everyday life of people in Connecticut, especially when neither one of them was born in Connecticut or spent their childhoods here. But that's the case for Pablo Delano and his father, Jack Delano. Jack came to Connecticut in 1940 as part of a New Deal program during the Great Depression of the 1930s to photograph farmers for the federal government's Farm Security Administration, the FSA. The agency included a photographic division devoted to recording the agency's history and with it, the history of rural communities it served. On Jack's Connecticut tour, he encountered Polish tobacco workers in Enfield, French Canadians in Montville's paper mills, and Finnish poultry farmers settled in Canterbury, as well as Jewish farmers in Colchester. Many of the photos are remarkable for their aesthetic quality. Today I'm talking to Jack's son Pablo, a remarkable photographer in his own right, about his father's work and his work documenting the streetscapes of Hartford. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Our summer issue of Connecticut Explored has a very vivid photo essay of Pablo Delano's photographs of Hartford, Connecticut, taken from a new book, Hartford Scene. Before we talk about your work, I would like to talk a little bit about your family's history. Where were your grandparents living when your father Jack was born in 1914? My grandparents were living in a small village outside of Kiev in what was then Russia and is now Ukraine. It was a little rural village in a tiny little, they lived in a a tiny little house. Uh, It was very freezing cold in the winter. And from what my father told me, they had one stove to keep the whole house warm. And they all would bundle up and sleep in the kitchen with the stove in the winter. And so they were a Jewish family living in the Pale of Settlement. There were pogroms happening and other violence against Jewish families at that time. Uh, When did they come to the United States? They came in 1923. They didn't personally experience the pogroms, but of course they heard about it. And of course it was very scary. They had relatives uh, in the U.S. and they thought it might be a good time to to leave uh, for what seemed like better opportunity. And what was your father's name, his original name? His name was Jacob Avcharov. There we go. Now, he had talent for both music and visual arts that were really recognized pretty early. Where did he study? Well, initially, he studied with uh, relatives back in in Russia. 
when he was a little kid, he had uh, violin lessons and viola lessons. So by the time they got on that ship to, came, to come to the U.S., uh, he was already, you know, pretty good at violin. And he, he, he told us that, for example, he played the violin on the ship for a few pennies to try to get money from the other passengers while entertaining them. In, uh, once they arrived and settled in Philadelphia, he went to high school where he had a very, uh, it was a very good high school. It was the only high school at the time that offered, he actually got a bachelor's degree from high school. Oh, uh, That's what his diploma says. I believe it was Central High School, but um, he got a lot of training in, um, in visual art while attending settlement music school in Philadelphia. His brother attended Curtis Institute on scholarship. In any case, by the time he graduated from high school, he was offered a, a uh, scholarship to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, and that's where he did his art education. When did he really begin working for the federal government? How did that happen? Well, that came about as a result of a kind of um, uh, awakening to uh, his interest in, in, in art. He, when he uh, was studying art, he was hoping to be an illustrator because that was a viable career, which would, could, be, could, could be lucrative. Uh, he grew up very, very poor. In Russia, my grandparents were sort of lower middle class or middle class. My grandmother was a dentist and my, father, my grandfather was a school teacher. But in the U.S., they, had very, they were very, very poor. And of course, I had many stories from him about how in the times that they went hungry, they had nothing to eat and whatnot. So it was important to have a career and to be able to succeed and, and make, make a, a comfortable living. And he thought he could do that through illustration. But the more he studied art, the more he became interested in artists who uh, depicted with dignity working people like his parents. So he eventually turned his camera to that kind of subject matter. Uh, at the time, of course, during the Roosevelt administration, there were programs to hire artists. There was something called the Federal Arts Project. And he ended up getting a job with the Federal Arts Project as a photographer. His first assignment was to photograph Shaker furniture. And he hated that. It was a very, you know, it was just taking up pictures of chairs and tables. He, he thought the furniture was very nice, but photographing furniture wasn't his idea of fulfilling experience. So he proposed a project which involved going to central Pennsylvania and photographing the life of bootleg coal miners. And uh, that was approved. So he was able to do it. And he went for over a month and lived with the family in central Pennsylvania, places like Scranton and Wilkes-Barre and um, gained the trust of the coal miners who took him into the mines. This was bootleg coal mining, it was illegal. He photographed a big, a whole series of, you know, he did a whole picture story of the life of these coal miners. When he returned to Philadelphia, he made a whole series of large, large photographic prints and had an exhibition at the railroad station in Pennsylvania, Penn Station. That exhibit was seen by the photographer Paul Strand, luckily enough. Paul Strand wrote to the uh, head of the Farm Security Administration in Washington and recommended my father as a photographer that they should keep an eye out on and as someone who might be valuable to the FSA photo program. And uh, my father applied to work there. There was no vacancy, but when Arthur Rothstein resigned, my father was hired. And then he went to work for the federal government as a documentary photographer in the FSA program. Now I have to say that farm security and fine art do not seem to be two 
categories that go together. How did they how did they come together that the Farm Security Administration was going to hire fine art producers like your father or photographers? The head of the photo division or the historical, so what was called the historical section of the FSA was a kind of a visionary named Roy Stryker. And he believed in the power of photography to uh, affect social change. He's a controversial figure, much criticized by especially the earlier photographers who worked there like uh, Walker Evans and Dorothea Lang. He was known to punch holes in negatives which was unheard of today, but he did believe in the power of photography and because of that was able to create a new government post called artist photographer. So uh, he wasn't just after photographers who would go out and point the camera at people suffering or poor living conditions. He was after photographers who could do that with a certain amount of sensitivity and artistry and feeling. And uh, so I actually believe quite the opposite, that documentary photography and uh, fine art are um, very much intertwined. And the documentary photography can certainly be fine art if it's done by someone with an eye for uh, sensitive treatment of the subject and also with a formal uh, understanding of how to make a picture in terms of lighting and composition and whatnot. I remember first seeing your father's photographs maybe 20 years ago, the ones that were taken of Jewish farmers in Connecticut and by that time, I had been recording oral histories of Jewish farm families and photographing farms for the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford for quite a few years. And I was just thrilled to see photographs of some of the individuals that I knew by name, like Leon Broder, who was a feed dealer in Colchester. Your father photographed him at his desk with his fedora on in his natural environment. And it was just so uh, moving to me to see pictures of people that I had heard the names of and that were important in that community. It's all, it was also great to see some of these farmers uh, work, you know, at work in the barn. And there's one I especially like where it's obviously an older couple. It looks, you know, man and a wife, and they're under portraits that I, when I first saw the picture photo, I thought, well, maybe it's them as engagement pictures young. I've been told that it's more likely to have been family members, but uh, they're sitting on the couch together and they're under these ancestral portraits. Uh, and it, it just is so somehow so real and so touching and so much a part of their how their life was on an everyday basis. That goes to your question about photography as visual art and the fine arts. That kind of awareness and sensitivity to the environment and ability to make those kinds of juxtapositions comes from a um, intensive study of the history of art because that kind of picture, using pictures within pictures and constructing a narrative through juxtapositions like that within a photograph comes from you know, real understanding of how pictures work. So. I'm so I'm excited that you <laughs> you picked up on that. Another thing that another thing that he particularly enjoyed, and this again comes out of looking at the old master paintings like like Vermeer, is the use of mirrors and reflections, and you know one reality within another reality. Looking, you know, having the indoors and the outdoors in the same picture, and it's not just a visual a trope. It's not just a visual a game, it adds to the meaning. It always compounds the meaning and makes the image that much richer because it tells multiple stories at the same time within one image. 
Now, here's what your father actually said in an interview with the Smithsonian's Archives of American Art. He said, I remember being in Connecticut, which is just a small state. Everything is kind of tightly packed, where within a radius of about five or 10 miles, we would be covering the Jewish community in Colchester with their synagogue. Yes, Jewish farmers who would get up at the crack of dawn to look after their cows in the pastures, and we would be invited into the home where this patriarch with long beard, looking very biblical with his wife and his skull cap, the same old man would go out and look after his crops and so on, and would go to the little synagogue in Colchester leading a completely Jewish life. I just love that. That's so yeah. interesting because it also relates to what we can talk about in a little while, which is this, that's that whole sense of smallness in, in relation to you know my work in Hartford and my the way I see Hartford. Oh, absolutely. Now, one last thing about your parents. Both of your parents were artists. Uh, your, your mother uh, was also an artist. And I understand that your parents got married on the road during the FSA period. They did. Uh, they got married on the 5th of July because they couldn't find a justice of the peace on the 4th of July. The, uh, my mother was uh, an important and integral part of my father's photographic work and his vision. And she traveled with him as much as possible uh, all over the country. There were times when it was absolutely, it was forbidden, but they did it anyway. It was against the rules of FSA, but they did it and they did it most of the time. There were a few assignments where she couldn't go. For instance, later on, when he when FSA became OWI and he did a story about railroad workers, it was just impossible for her to, to do that because that was a completely male-dominated world. Mm -hmm. But she but she uh, they always looked at the uh, contact prints together. They edited together, and he really relied on her judgment in terms of uh, not only aesthetically but. Uh, in terms of how to navigate particular situation and whatnot. Yeah, your father said there were times that it helped to have her there because it made, it, it was a friendlier experience and people were more likely to talk to them sometimes because they were a couple and she had an outgoing, warm personality. And so there was definitely, they were definitely a team. She was yeah. also very pretty and that that helped. Oh, that never hurts. <laughs> now, uh, what made your parents move to Puerto Rico after the second war? Well, the, um, uh, as you know, Puerto Rico was acquired or invaded by the United States in 1898 and is a technically an unincorporated territory of the United States. The first 50 years of U.S. rule were quite horrific in that um, the U.S. basically exploited the island every possible way, turning, acquiring lands, taking over lands, and turning it over to the big U.S. sugar companies. Things had been tough under Spain, but under the US, it got really, really bad. And there was rampant starvation because they turned it into a one crop. One, you know, it was all agriculture, it was all sugarcane, it was one crop. When there was no sugarcane to pick, there was no work. And the situation was very, very bad. Uh, in any case, FDR appointed a governor, uh, Tugwell, Rexford Tugwell, and he was quite taken by the situation and wanted to presumably improve it. So he asked for photographers to be sent so that they could begin to document the social conditions on the island, presumably to so that something could be done about it. And having the photographs would be evidence of what was actually going on. So in 1942, 40, late 1941, my parents were in Greene County, Georgia photographing and the FSA received this request 
And the head of FSA, Mr. Stryker, looked on the map and figured out which photographer was geographically closer to Puerto Rico. And it turned out to be my parent, my father. So it was completely by chance that my father was assigned to go to Puerto Rico. And um, in fact, he agreed to go and then got out the atlas to figure out where he had agreed to go because he didn't even know where it was. He never even heard of it, but it sounded exciting, so he accepted. He arrived in December 1941, uh, and it was, uh, and I believe the next day was December 7th, and he was in the Palace Hotel in San Juan, where he heard FDR's speech on the radio declaring war. And so he then was stuck there and couldn't leave. Uh, my mother, against all the rules, got on a freighter and somehow managed to get to San Juan. Uh, uh, the all the ships were traveling in convoys uh, because they were afraid the submarines, German submarines would sink. Anyway, she managed to get there safely. And so they spent uh, about four months there. Originally, they were going to go to the Virgin. They did go to the Virgin Islands. That was part of the assignment. But they spent most of the time in Puerto Rico and they photographed in every municipality, in every town. And they basically fell in love with it. They fell in love with the people. They fell in love with the place, the, the way of the way of things were, the, the manner of people. Uh, it made a very, very deep and profound impression. And at that point, they made a commitment to return. So after the war, when my father eventually went back after the four months and created a massive archive of photographs, very, very important. It's really impossible to overstate how, how important those, that documentation is. It, it is the documentation of the island of Puerto Rico in, in, in the 40s. And it's in the Library of Congress now as public domain. In any case, uh, returned to the United States. But after the war, he got, he got drafted and served in the, in the military. But after his discharge, he applied for a Guggenheim uh, to do a, um, a book about Puerto Rico, photography book. He did receive the Guggenheim. It was the this, only the second Guggenheim ever given to a photographer. The first one went to uh, Edward Weston, I believe it was. So anyway, they moved the Puerto Rico for presumably for a year with the idea that they would be there a year and produce this book, but ended up being a lifetime of commitment and they completely they learned Spanish quite rather quickly and uh, became involved with local artists and uh, intellectuals and writers and people of all sorts and became involved in government efforts to use the arts as a means to address social issues. And that began, you know, that was the start of a, a whole, another whole career, not only in photography, but filmmaking and, of course, music, as we mentioned earlier. I'm so impressed because here your father has started out in Yiddish and then learned English and then learned Spanish. So you grew up in Puerto Rico. How do you think that's influenced your photography? Well, I, I just want to add that I think because of because my father was a Russian and, and Yiddish speaker, when he learned Spanish, he had a very interesting accent. It was almost, oh. <laughs> it was almost, I mean, his Spanish was native Puerto Rican Spanish. It was, if you listen carefully, you could distinguish there was something quite off, slightly off, but it wasn't an American accent. And, but he, he pretty much passed for a native speaker also because he learned it absolutely fluently, perfectly well. My mother was also fluent, but she was born in Canada. And so she never had that background. So she had a pronounced American accent, although she was she was fluent. But yes, the fact that they settled there and I was born there and that they decided that, you know, that they wanted to raise me there. And 
was an enormously important and powerful. And I'm incredibly grateful to them because unlike many North Americans who moved there and whatnot, they would, who would go back to the States to have their kids or whatever, my parents decided that I should be born there. And, and uh, for me, it's just been a cataclysmic, important, super, it's like the most important thing to me in my life to have to have that in my heritage and to have that identity so I guess I was born I grew up there and my parents um, my parents were very much involved with local politics and local art scene and this and that so all my entire environment as a child was Puerto Rican it wasn't American or North America my first language was Spanish actually to the point that they, they, my, my parents were worried at a certain point that I wasn't learning English so that had to be it. but in any case how it influenced my photography is in every possible way, because, uh, you know, when I decided to study art and moved, came to the U.S. to go to art school, that was so much an important part of my identity and who I was that uh, it, it reflect, it, it's been reflected in everything I've done since. Now, what brought you to Hartford? What brought me to Hartford was... It's very cold in Hartford, you know. <laughs> so. What brought me to Hartford was uh, what they call um, an offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> Trinity College, which is a very traditional school in a lot of ways, unlike most of the colleges and universities in this whole country, was not offering courses in photography as late as 1996. Wow. And so it seemed that they, they, the, the college felt that it was about time to address that. And so I was basically um, hired to implement the photography curriculum. So I came with some trepidation because I was in the Big Apple, which has everything. But arriving in Hartford was uh, was cathartic in some ways. And uh, some friends and colleagues took me on my first visit down to a Mercado on Park Street. And that was uh, mind blowing. And I realized that, wow, I could live here. This is, <laughs> this is interesting. This is really interesting. So my early hesitations were actually uh, addressed by actually coming and spending some time in particular on Park Street and particularly in El Mercado and walking around and hearing Puerto Rican Spanish. Uh, so I felt very much at home. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers. We'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with the CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements. Lots of great stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. Comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. Check it out at ctexplored.substack.com. It's free. Now, back to the episode. I know you're very interested in what you call food culture, photographing markets and restaurants. Tell me a little bit about that vision. Well, um, I think we should back up a little bit because, um, you know, what, I did not start photographing Hartford when I moved here. It, that oh. took a while. That took a long, that took a while. I started noticing Hartford right away um, and enjoying the incredibly diverse uh, offerings of Hartford in terms of food and everything else, music and culture and whatnot. One of my first experiences in Hartford was meeting a professor at Trinity, Professor Miller Reggio, who was researching Trinidad. And she knew that I was interested in the Caribbean and whatnot. And she invited me to come to Carnival in Trinidad. 
and that was my, during my first year in Hartford. And that was absolutely mind blowing because I had very little, I had no experience with the English speaking Caribbean. And so traveling there and seeing all the parallels and seeing a country that had achieved uh, independence that was no longer a colony was mind blowing. So I spent about 10 years photographing in Trinidad and published a book of photographs about Trinidad. And I did other projects um, during my first say 10 years at Trinity, but always with my eye on Hartford. And as a visual artist, I feel the need to be doing something all the time. Uh, at a certain point, about 2008, something clicked and I kind of realized, well, you know, I have Hartford right in front of me all the time, every day. Why not start taking photographs? Why not start taking photographs of all these things that I've I've been observing. And so it started as just a kind of need to keep busy kind of a thing. And uh, the more I did, the more involved I got. And the more I started to explore different parts of the city, because initially it just started photographing things that were between my house and my job. But then I wanted to go further out into the south, into the north end and whatnot. And, and then I started to see a lot of these repeating patterns, like the things that you've uh, mentioned, the houses of worship, for example, in the north end, which was very, very heavily Jewish. And there are some 20 some synagogues and none of those buildings are synagogues anymore, but they're all still standing. And most of them are houses of worships. They're not all, they're one or two have been torn down, but they're all houses of worship. It's just that they're not synagogues anymore. But I found it fascinating that the current occupants of these buildings, and although the buildings are used for spiritual purposes, they are Pentecostal churches or Adventist or whatnot, none of the current occupants seem to feel the need to destroy or remove the signs of what the building was before. So you still have Hebrew writing, the tablets and Star of David all over these buildings. To me, that was fascinating. And it would kind of seem to me like a metaphor for the way for a kind of continuity and a kind of what we call in Spanish convivencia. It's very hard to translate exactly with all the connotations. Convivencia, it means um, conviviality, the ability to live together even though you're different. Uh, the way to establish a, a common ground with people. So that really fascinated me. I think I photographed every building in the North End that is or was a synagogue. And you know, from there, of course, stores became very interesting. I noticed the Caribbean nature of the city. To me, Hartford is a Caribbean city. I mean, you have a huge, something like 40% are from Puerto Rico, right? And then there's the, the largest foreign born population is Jamaican. I say, for, I say that because, of course, Puerto Ricans have U.S. citizenship. The point is that Hartford is a heavily Caribbean city, and uh, that manifests in the visual. For instance, there, there are artists who paint palm trees, murals with palm trees. There's, there are many murals with palm trees, and I've noticed that there are two artists who do all of them. There's one, one is West Indian, or probably Jamaican, the other one is Puerto Rican, and they paint the same, you, know, you can recognize the style of the palm trees all over the city. I love that. So how did your, you know, now you've been out on the streets and you've decided that you're going to really look at Hartford, not just as where you live, but as fodder for artistic, your artistic work. How did your uh, vision for your book project come together, seeing Hartford? The, um, the book project was an outgrowth of the exhibition. And the exhibition was an outgrowth of just um, amassing this... Um, this kind of archive of pictures 
in which uh, many of the themes that you've articulated and that we've spoken of get expressed over and over and over again. So that there's this commonality in the sense of the, in the images. For example, we talk about layers of history and what happens is that it's, that's just, that's not only true metaphorically, it's true physically. Because if you look at the buildings, you can actually physically see how one sign was painted over another or over another. Um, there's a fascinating, I'm sure you know this, a row of houses and down in near Colt Park, they're the houses that, that Colt built to attract Bavarian or Swiss craftsmen. And he built them to look like Swiss chateaus. And that's just for me like a living uh, animated film because if you start at one corner, the, the, the first one is like perfectly restored almost. And the second one, the second one is almost as good. And then as you go down the block, each one gets progressively more and more and more deteriorated or more and more altered, right? So to me, that's fascinating. Kind of um, after amassing, you know, years of going out and observing this same phenomenon repeat over and over and over again. And to my mind, it told the story of a city in flux, a city of people coming and going, uh, a kind of uh, city where people would bring their hopes and expectations, you know, the industrial past, and yes, the, the past grandeur, but in a way I saw, even though obviously Hartford has gone from one of the wealthiest cities in the past to one of the poorest cities in the country today, there's still a kind of a spectacular humanity in the diverse cultures and the way they come together and the closeness of it. I'm thinking of the quote that you used earlier of my father when he was talking about how small it is. When you go to Park Street or El Mercado or even Parkville is a great example because there are all these cultures right next to each other. And that doesn't happen in big cities so much. Right? You don't have a, a Colombian market next to a Portuguese market next to a next to a Thai restaurant that's actually run by Lao people next to Lisbon port, uh, furniture, on and on and on like this. So in any case, I proposed the idea of an exhibit to the Connecticut Historical Society. Kate Steinway was then the director and she agreed. And so we did the exhibit. Uh, as part of the exhibit, I thought it would be nice to have an exhibition catalog. And that became a collaboration with Rich Holland, who is now, you know, who has uh, the director of CoLab, the design firm, but also the director of Free Center in Hartford. And so together we conceived this idea of a of an exhibition catalog that would be printed on newsprint so it could be given out for free and it would be primarily visual. So you're also working on a large scale art installation project called the Museum of the Old Colony. And a sliver of that can be seen in an outdoor display at Hartford's Colt Park until September 15, 2021. This is a very intricate conceptual art piece that you describe as a fake museum that uses standard museum exhibit elements like historic photos and everyday objects, but you're doing it as an art installation. Tell us a little bit about how you came up with that concept. Well, thanks for mentioning it. It is something that is that is um, I'm deeply involved in right now, and it's an exhibition that's been held at uh, now at museums and galleries around the world, including uh, the Photography Biennial in Argentina. It's it's been in Trinidad and Tobago. It, it was a piece that was acquired by the Museum of Contemporary Art of San Juan in Puerto Rico, Museum of Contemporary Art of Puerto Rico. It, um, it's a piece that is constantly in flux so that the 
it's true that the Museum of Contemporary Art of Puerto Rico has, they own the piece and it's in their permanent collection, but I keep developing the idea and doing new versions of it in new locations and responding to the specific location. The idea for the piece uh, is based um, in, in terms of in terms of the um, methodology. It comes out of a lot of what's happening in, in contemporary art. You know, in, in terms of uh, well, first of all, many artists today are working with archival materials as as a source, uh, as a source as a way of dealing with memory and history and processing their own life life experiences. And another methodology that, of course, is not new, but it is part of, I wouldn't say, it's not new to contemporary art, but it is a part of what we call modern art, you know, started to be um, implemented in the 20th century, is this idea of appropriation, that an artist can reuse something made by another artist earlier and reinterpret it, for example, the way Picasso used African art and, you know, that's to go back away or even before that and much more relevant to what I'm doing, the way Marcel Duchamp uh, employed common household objects like a bicycle wheel and uh, declared that it was art because he said so. To contextualize it within within contemporary art, it is a contemporary uh, conceptual art installation that utilizes these methodologies of appropriation and using historical sources, but making the mind, taking ownership o- over them in some way. But the the motivation for it is um, is very personal. It's me trying to come to terms with um, the fact that my homeland um, is the oldest colony in the world today. Puerto Rico has not had self-rule since the arrival of Christopher Columbus in 1493. The, I was looking at the Hampshire College art catalog for the exhibit, and this is the quote I want to use just sort of end our discussion of this exhibit. The art catalog for the exhibit says, this is a strategy used by Pablo Delano and his installation in the Museum of the Old Colony. Instead of depicting and denouncing the colonizer, the artist mutes his voice, allowing for the imperialists to speak for themselves, to manifest their racism, sexism, and misogyny and all their brash arrogance. Delano appropriates photos taken by Americans during the early 20th century and places them in his museum to expose the colonizer's visual logic exactly as they themselves define it. More about this evolving work can be seen at the website, museumoftheoldcolony.org, as well as exhibition catalogs that are online. And don't forget to get your copy of the summer issue of Connecticut Explored that features Pablo's uh, photo essay from Hartford at ctexplored.org. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. To see more of Pablo Delano's work, look for his new book, Hartford Scene, wherever you get your books. To see more of Jack Delano's work as a photographer for the Federal Security Administration, go to the Library of Congress website at loc.gov and search for his name, Jack Delano. To read more about Jack Delano's photographs taken of Connecticut's Jewish farmers, get the book A Life of the Land, Connecticut's Jewish Farmers, available from the Greater Hartford Jewish Historical Society on their website at jhsgh.org. 
Want to know more about Connecticut's landmarks, museums, art, and history? Subscribe to Connecticut Explored Magazine in your mailbox or inbox. And for a daily dose of history, visit Today in Connecticut History, produced by the Connecticut State Historian at todayinctshistory.com. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us again for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.